Nice knife. Mm-hmm. Pizza dude's got 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. Hey, Mikey, did you ever think about what Splinter said tonight? I mean, about what it would be like. You know, not having him. Hmm. Time's up. Three bucks off. This is Film Slam. Welcome to the show. So, I'm Cesar Gonzalez. I'm here with my good friend Patrick Kelly. Hey, Cesar. And today we're talking about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles from 1990. And I wanted to do this movie second for a couple of reasons, and um, I'll go over them now. I wanted to show the breadth of what we're going to be doing with this show. And I also wanted to talk about how this movie is not talked about enough and how there could be a case made for maybe this movie is a masterpiece. (laughs) Um, So some of my first impressions about this movie as a kid were it just kind of left an indelible stamp on my childhood. Like if you look through old photos of me as a kid, no doubt I'd be wearing an individual shirt, especially like I had this, uh, I had this purple shirt and it was like a group of them. And I liked that especially because Donatello was my favorite. And what kind of surprised me when I started to look things up about this movie is that this movie was like pretty well regarded when it came out. And that kind of surprised me because I thought people would think it was silly or something. Um, But uh, I was like actually surprised to read that this is one of the highest or the highest grossing indie movie until the Blair Witch Project came out. And that's another thing that came uh, as a surprise to me is that this is an indie movie. Like nobody wanted to touch this. There's very little amount of money. They started with like a three million dollar budget when they first set out on this. Um, What are your early impressions of this? Yeah. So it was a it was an indie movie. It's that was surprising to me, too. And, you know, in in, uh, watching the movie for this podcast and and doing the research, I, I saw that it you know, exactly as you had said, it yeah. was the highest growing, grossing indie movie at the time, grossed like $135 million in the, in the box office. Yeah, crazy amount. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, independently produced, um, didn't, uh, yeah, wasn't wasn't put out, I guess, as like a, you know, like a commercial venture from like the, the mainstream, like Hollywood studios. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, as far as, as far as um, first impressions of the, of the movie, I've, I've got, you know, a history with it. You know, when five or six years old, I was like replaying this movie. Yeah. I had it on VHS. I was just replaying it. I figured, I think we're only about a year apart. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So it's like, um, yeah, I think of, uh, you know, you know, a person of a certain age, you know, I I feel like most guys of a certain age Mm -hmm. loved the, the Ninja Turtles, you know, like me and all my cousins of the same age, like we're all obsessed with it. Yeah. Definitely. Um, There's a cultural awareness of it, especially, you know, in our friend group and stuff like that. Oh yeah, for sure. And I think, um, I I wanted to talk about this and how it's so important because of the saturation of like MCU movies, DCEU movies and how this is important for that. And this is like a, a, a very good rendition of a comic book. And I don't know. I think I think it needs to be talked about more. Yeah, like uh, this movie has a comic book adaptation. You know, the whole phenomenon of uh, comic book adaptations yeah. to film. And um, and they had tried things like this before, like Howard yeah. the Duck had failed before, and I think one other that I can't think of. And after that was a failure. Like obviously they didn't want to touch this, and that's why it had such a small budget. And they ended up taking it over to a production company in China and making it. I really loved this movie. Like I loved it as a kid. You know, like I I 
played it over and over and over again, as I said, but you know, as what, you know, watching it now, mm-hmm. um, I have like so much more of an appreciation of it. I, yes. I didn't know it was so deep and so well done. Yes. You know, like, uh, completely effective. Yeah. It was, it was awesome. Um, I think that's something that's undeniable at this point. I watch it now and I think that's why I think more people should watch this because I think it's like undeniably effective in a way. Like I think a lot of people would be touched by this. There's a lot of pathos in this and I think that's important because of the puppet work. And that's kind of something you don't see anymore in movies that would be replaced with something with like CGI. And the director of this movie, his name it was uh, Steve Barron. Steve Barron. Yeah. So he said he was going for a, a, a grounded feel, which this movie it's oh, com- sure. it's completely yeah. grounded. Yeah. It's very tactile, you know. You can feel it all. Like the costumes, like you can see sweat on them and stuff. You know, mm-hmm. they're really living. And I yeah, think that- it's uh, it's not the cartoon, you know. So like um, in in the chronology here, I guess uh, the cartoon came out in I think 1987 mm-hmm. or something like that. So uh, by the time the movie had come out, the cartoon had been running for a few years. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, so you know, from that perspective, it's like they had this like wealth of material, you know, let alone the comic books. You had the cartoon. People were going to be more familiar with the cartoon. Right. Yeah. And they had this kind of wealth of material and, and yeah, I guess, you know, to your point, Baron was like, I'm going to make this uh, yeah more grounded. Exactly. Kind of and that kind of sets some context for what was happening at the time when this movie came out. Mm-hmm. So this movie came out a year before Batman. And I think that's the movie that people point to and be like, this is where dark comic book movies came from. Like, this is the genesis. And Steve Barron, like, admitted that he watched Batman. He's like, that's what I was going for. Like, that's that's the, the tone that I wanted to accomplish. And I think he did. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's done just as well, if not better than Batman. That's arguable and is like, you know, that'll piss people off for sure. Yeah, I, no, I, I think I agree with you after, after watching this again. It's, uh, you know, especially, you know, the story of Raphael, you, mm-hmm. know, would, would, you know, we can get into it uh, later, but uh, I, I just want to make a note on, on Steve Barron. Like, I think his really only his other, you know, I, I looked at his, uh, his resume, uh-huh. you know, and really the only title I recognized after TMNT was Coneheads. Yeah. So he did Coneheads yeah, in yeah. 1993. Um, I was just talking about that. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody references that enough. Right, either. right. <laughs> Maybe not a masterpiece, but another movie that doesn't get into the conversation as much. Yeah, <laughs> we'll have to review that one. The Dan Aykroyd masterpiece. <laughs> it was Dan Aykroyd right? <laughs> yeah, it was Dan Aykroyd. Um, so, do you have any thoughts about what was happening in 1990? Uh, 1990. Um, yeah. So, when watching this movie again, um, the the so the film came out in 1990. Right off the bat, um, it's, uh, you know, it's April O'Neil doing a newscast about yeah. the crime rate mm-hmm. in New York City. Um, and, you know, to this day, like the, the spike in crime in New York City in the 1980s mm-hmm. and early 1990s where it, and where it kind of peaked and then fell off. Mm-hmm. Like there's there's a lot of analysis and theorizing and speculation and stuff like that as, as far as why that was. Um, like if if you listen to Freakonomics Radio, they mm-hmm. have a theory. Yeah. Um, you know Malcolm Gladwell has a theory, and in, in in the tipping point. But uh, you know, in the movie, playfully enough, it's the Foot Clan. You know, that's the explanation <laughs> for the spike in crime. It's probably a commentary about youth and violence in the intersection there, and yeah. where where youth is placing that rage, which is like um, you know kind of a major theme in this movie. You know? Yeah, yeah, and and. Uh, as far as the it yeah that it's it's very interesting because the where the 
characters, you know, you've got a contrast between the family or whatever that uh, Splinter is kind of set up and Mm -hmm. the gang that the family and the gang that the shredder has set up Mm -hmm. and each of these as like a channel for like youth rage or angst or, um, or whatever, you know, and, and, you know, because it's like Raphael is full of, full of rage and angst and, and all that. And he's got, I don't know, this environment with, with Splinter. Yeah. And, um, and, and a, and a mentor, you know, and and, Danny as well, who was kind of the, the kid full of rage without a mentor, the absent father. Yeah. And kind of these parallel paths that they follow. Mm -hmm. Um, what happens, what happens to, uh, this kid full of rage who doesn't have a suitable mentor, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and that's kind of the other end of it, which is, I think, is like why they included Danny. Aside from that, there, there's some notes on production that I wanted to talk about to give it a little bit more context and fill it out a little bit. So this movie had a lot of problems. Like they had a lot of problems finding the money to make this movie. And to the credit of the producers, they were intent, like they wanted to do this. And so this famously, one of the producers, <clears throat> this is an actual quote, quote said i realized this was gonna be just a bunch of chinese guys in costumes (laughs) so so they ended up taking the movie to a chinese production company golden harvest who you know gets their name on the film and golden harvest was most well known for bruce lee movies and so this was kind of a perfect fit for them and the movie was going well until they started to involve jim henson and jim henson he's a master at what he does so this automatically doubles the budget and this is the first time that Jim Henson has lent his name to anything outside of his creature shop. And this will be the last time because, notably, he was disappointed in the project. Yeah, yeah. so I, I read that... Uh, so Jim Henson, you know, I guess initially didn't even want to be connected to it because of, because of the violence. I guess he knew the Ninja Turtles, right, the source material and he all did. that. And, um, he was apprehensive. Yeah, apprehensive. I guess he needed to be convinced that you know, it wasn't going to tarnish his legacy. Yeah. And the, um, ultimately the connection came because of his son, his son knew the production guys. And so he was convinced by his son to lend his name to this movie. And they had promised him, um, this is, this is, we're doing this in like a, a with good intentions or this is going to be like a, a good spirited movie. This is not a violent movie, you know, mm. which may or may not have been a lie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, was the was the comic pretty graphic as far as as violence? far as yeah I, think, uh, I, I never read any of them directly gruesome, right? but yeah but from my research yeah um, they had taken I think Henson and Jim had looked at the comic and he's like there was blood all over this thing right right yeah like this is not what I do and that's why he was worried about it yeah um, there's not blood all over this movie for sure but right. there is violence there's violence yeah yeah. I mean, we don't have Leonardo impaling anybody on one of his katanas, so that's good. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, plenty of plenty of butt kicking. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but it looks amazing. Um, that brings me to the point of the suits, and I think this is a part, like an important part of the making of this film, is that these suits weighed seventy pounds. They required two puppeteers each. There was a suit for action and a suit for acting, and it's well documented that several points during the filming. The actors would just start screaming, get this head off of me. Oh, my God. Like panicking, just losing their shit. So they had separate suits, uh, I guess, one where they needed to be mobile. I guess the joints were more movable and things like that. Yeah, without all the electronics. They they stored all the electronics in the shell. Mm. Yeah, so for the ones like you see them acting, you you get the close-ups on their faces. Um, 
I'm not sure if those are the ones that weigh 70 pounds or just bolt suits did. Yeah. But regardless, the way that they move in these suits is incredible. Yeah. So, the, yeah, just to comment on the suits, like they all practical effects, right? And and uh, the faces moved with um, animatronic mechanisms inside yeah. inside the, the head. Mm-hmm. Um, so the all of that, all of those electronics, I guess, were kind of stored up in the shell. Yeah. And, uh, um, you know, I had read that they had somebody off screen, you know, controlling the the face movements <laughs> based on the cues in the scene. Yeah, which had to be uh, syn- synced with the head movements that the actors were doing. Right. Yeah. So, so that this this person on on off screen who's controlling uh, the the face movements in the screen is just watching the scene play out and kind of improvising based on what the actors in the suit is doing, mm. um, which had to have been. Had to have been interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, in these suits, they're made out of latex, so there's this whole portion they online. Don't breathe. <laughs> yeah. One, it can't breathe, and two, they were in the sewers and they were slipping all over the place. Oh my like, God. These guys were constantly eating shit. And they were in real sewers. I, you can tell, right? There are plenty of uh, yeah scenes where they're in actual sewers. The first couple of weeks, they were yeah. talking about what, like, how just terrible it was. It was hell for them. And the guy who plays Raphael, uh, John Pais. He said that it was just such a frustrating experience, um, just sliding all around, constantly eating shit, and he's also claustrophobic. So he just channeled all this rage into being Raphael. What? And uh, so, so the guy who played Raphael, that was Josh Pais? Yeah. Um, he was uh, the only one who uh, actually, I guess... Got to voice. Got to voice it and, yeah. and acted in yeah, the suit. Yeah, he's in the right? suit and that's his voice. Right. Yeah. Um, as for the other ones, their voices got dubbed over, and they had no idea until the premiere. Oh. <laughs> wow! Really? So the yeah. guy in the suit, like the guy in the Donatello suit, like went and to the premiere, to the and premiere. he's like, "What, Corey Feldman? <laughs> what?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The the woman who played April O'Neil, uh, Judith Hogue, she said, uh, she she looked at him. She's like, "Where are you guys? Like, that, that's not you." Oh my god! Yeah, which must have been like, so severely disappointing. <laughs> I'm surprised that they even came back to the second one. Oh, there's a story, so somewhat related. Um, I think it was 2001: Space Odyssey. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the that was Kubrick, right? Yeah. Um, he uh, changed the film score at the last minute mm. and he didn't tell the, the guy who did the original score <laughs> and it was like at the premiere oh the guy who did the original score was like what the hell <laughs> <laughs> he got uh, cut out right. one of the masterpieces of all time yeah and a masterpiece score like it was right, <laughs> I don't know what the original one sounded like <laughs> so uh Jim Henson famously said um, that for Storyteller, which is a show that he was working on previously to this, um, that he had to invent one new technology for each episode. But for this movie that they invented, probably nine, nine or more technologies. So this guy was like coming with an off the cuff. Like, how do we do this? Let's get this done. Um, A genius. Yeah, no, it's amazing. And I mean, it makes sense. Like they didn't, when they brought Jim Henson in, the the budget doubled. but uh, I th- to cover the the gap, they I think they um, connected with New Line Cinema, mm-hmm. um, and they and New Line Cinema uh, subsidized the the rest of the production. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, it's kind of like it kind of put them on the map too a little bit, like because this movie was like a huge success, like as we talked about, like it was the highest grossing 
indie movie uh, to that point mm-hmm. um, after, um, you know, before the Blair Witch Project yeah. uh, unseated them in, in 1999. But uh, prior to that, New Line Cinema, they, I think their their most notable releases were the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Mm. Uh, there were like, I think six or seven of those. Yeah. Uh, um, and they were successful. Like I think combined, they all grossed, you know, $700 million, something like that. Um, but you know, that's like six or seven movies. So this was like the first time I would say this is like the turtles is probably the, their most successful single release. That's like their first hit. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, um, and then, you know, they had like a run, you know, after that where they were, um, they were doing quite a lot. Yeah. I mean, famously for sure. And their their names all over movies. Mm -hmm. Um, a couple of things that kind of stood out to me also in my research is that Baron kind of. In an interview, he offhandedly says that this movie is about a character with mental issues, which really? is, yeah, which is like kind yeah. of like a clear vision because that's not the first thing I would think of. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a little more clear now that I've rewatched it. And he's talking about Raphael, right? Yeah. Yeah. He's talking about Raphael. Um, I thought that was interesting that he had a really clear vision of what this movie was going to be about. And Raphael very much centers this movie. Um, uh, kind of like in tandem with that note is that Sally Minky, Tarantino's uh, editor, um, who has now passed, but she edited this movie. And this movie is very tight. And you can see kind of like the brilliant work that she put into it. And, you know, you put this in in the kind of league with the Tarantino movie and those things just move. And I think this movie very much like moves. And you kind of, it, it just doesn't, there's no lulls, and yeah. I think I think maybe when we watched this, uh, like maybe a month back or something like that, and we were kind of excited about it. Yeah, I, I thought maybe the third act was a little draggy, but I just watched this this week, and it was like, no, like beginning to end, excellent. No, you're right. It it moves. Yeah. Sometimes it's hard to you know. Sometimes it's hard to keep up with the plot. Yeah. No, it it moves. Um, like if if we want to talk about it a little bit, just the first ten minutes of the movie. You yes. know, you know all of the characters. Yeah, like definitely. You, you know the the first scene after they kind of um, uh, save April from from getting jumped by by the hoodlums. Uh, um, they um, they have this scene like in the sewer when they're returning to the the hideout. Yeah, to and, Splinter. Yeah, to Splinter. Yeah, and and right off the bat, you get a sense of like all four of their personalities. Um, you know, right off the bat, you get a sense of Raph's personality. He, you know, he's walking in, kind of like trailing thirty feet behind the others. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's kind of sulking after he lost his sigh. Um, you know, you just kind of see immediately that he's like the outcast of the group. He's kind of like apart from his brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, when uh, they get into Splinter's, you know, get back into their house and Splinter's there, like you, you get a sense of Leo immediately. He runs right up to. Um, he runs right up to Splinter, like, you know, gets down on his knees and he's like, master, we did well, you know, like we, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, so he's like, he's kind of like the leader, like kind of the goody shoot two shoes appeals to authority and, um, kind of, you know, he's, he's kind of the, the, the leader, um, Michelangelo in that same scene is, you know, first thing he does is he grabs the phone book, calls the pizza delivery guy, you know, during this kind of serious you know scene where splinter's trying to uh impart some wisdom mm-hmm. um he's on the phone ordering pizza <laughs> and um 
you know, Splinter's giving a, a bit of a lecture and, um, you know, that, that, that scene ends, but right after that, Donatello comes up to Mikey and you played that at the top of the show, you know, uh, and that, that reveals kind of Donatello's personality. Yeah. He's the, um, you know, like thoughtful, intellectual, reflective, mm-hmm. you know, he, he's, he's reflecting on what Splinter yeah. had just, had just said. Uh, and in under two minutes, you know exactly. Yeah, that they're just so clearly defined. Yeah, it. Yeah, the movie is so tight. Yeah, yeah it, it just is. goes, 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 and and you know, you know everybody right off the bat. Yeah, which brings me to the first thing that I wanted to talk about and kind of go over what this movie is about, and that's to go back to where April was attacked by the Foot Clan, and I think um, it's just like a smart move to establish who Raphael is and what he is going through. Um, he loses one of his side and that immediately makes him vulnerable. And he's, he's, uh, he's a kind of peeking out of the sewer cap and looking at it. And he just, he feels, he doesn't feel safe. And then when they're walking back to Splinter immediately following that, he's trailing behind these guys and he is sulking. And, um, you can tell that he's not tight with his brothers. um, and he's just kind of he's he's the outcast. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. he doesn't fit in there, and so again, right away, you know, we understand kind of the the central conflict, um, and we bring that with us for the rest of the movie. Like maybe we don't understand in that moment, but we definitely carry that with that with us. And I think this movie like so clearly defines its characters that it's hard to ignore um, just how well it's written, how well it's put together. Yeah, and. Um... You, you said something a bit um a bit earlier about Raphael wanting to be seen yeah like that's something that I didn't really think about before but yes I think you really hit on something there do you want to talk about that a little bit yeah and I think um in Splinter's first speech he I, the quote is our domain is in the shadows and that's where they live and this movie is dark like tonally uh, and and stylistically, it's it's dark. It, it, it's shot in very low light, like Godfather levels. Like you can't really see anything. Like when you get to, like the Foot Clan, then you can't see their faces. Like that's how like dimly lit this thing is. So this movie is all about darkness. And Raphael wants to be seen. Um, he's the character that goes out. You know, he goes watches the movie. You know, he gets into scuffles and stuff like that. Um, whether it be intentional or unintentional, he's a character who wants to be seen. And I think what that first scene shows us when he's walking behind his brothers is that he's not seen by his brothers or he feels like he's not seen by his brothers. And, um, that's something that comes into play later. You know, why, why isn't this group working? You know, like, why aren't they gelling? And it's because they're missing one, you know, and they're not seeing him and they're not doing what they need to do. Like, yeah, Raphael has problems, but they need to be there for him. And, um, that, that set up Amelia and like when that's tied up that's when they become the most powerful you know like, yeah, I, I can't yeah. believe just like how beautifully this thing right yeah I'll say it over and over again yeah no that's what this film is about you know it's yeah. the it's the push and pull of um like individuality and being part of a group yeah it's like yeah no it it's so good um you know Raphael being this kind of he's you know that's where they're going wrong is like, he's on, he's on an Island. Right. Yeah. And they, in order for them to be cohesive and to gel, they need to bring him back in. Yeah. And, um, and that's what the movie is working toward. Like there, there's something not gelling with them. Um, they're not as, as effective as they could be. They're distracted, you know? 
Um, and it's because they aren't whole. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but this brings me to the scene of Raphael after he gets his ass kicked <laughs> by Casey Jones. And I know that's something you wanted to talk about. Um, how would we play that? Sure. My master Yoshi's first rule was possess the right thinking. Only then can one receive the gifts of strength, knowledge, and peace. I have tried to channel your anger, Raphael, but more remains. Anger clouds the mind. Turned inward, it is an unconquerable enemy. You are unique among your brothers, for you choose to face this enemy alone. But as you face it, do not forget them, and do not forget me. I am here, my son. Okay, so that's powerful. That is beautiful. <laughs> God, and what a good mentor. Like, he sees what's going on with him, right? He's yeah. Like, you're trying to face this alone, and it's not going to work out for you. Yeah, and he knows him so perfectly yeah. well, but he's not going to give him the answers. I'm not even try to like hold his hand through this thing. Yeah. He's just telling him this is what you need to do. And I think um, in his first speech, he kind of gives a general statement of like why this isn't working. Or he, he tells him, you should think about what it's going to be like when I'm not here. Mm -hmm. And that's them being self-reliant. And these guys cannot be self-reliant if they aren't whole. And then we get to this speech, and it kind of crystallizes more what the problem is and it's that yeah. Raphael is is angry yeah and which, which God, goes into your theory about violence in the 90s and angry youth and things like that I think it's yeah no like this scene like chokes me up every time yeah like that, it's, and it's, it's crazy. so good yeah um, and I, I, I think a lot of it is the way it's shot too like the camera is right in their faces um, it reminds me of something like um, like the Revenant or something like kind of like Chiva worked on where the, uh, the, the frame is like kind of tight and their faces are just up and, and, and so close and the camera is just kind of like going side to side and um, Raphael's like crying and so yeah. emotional. Like the yeah. camera is right there on him and you're not going to see that in a Marvel movie. Let me tell you that right. much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the, the tear, you know, like the light, light from the candle reflecting off the, the tear yes. coming down. Yeah. Off and of this animatronic mask, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, Wow, and like, it is light from a candle. Like yeah. I'm pretty sure they shot that with only light from a candle. Maybe yeah. the cameras weren't as good. Maybe there was more lighting, but that's some Kubrick style <laughs> shit. Um, but but no, that, that the you know Splinter's first lecture to all the uh, turtles, mm -hmm. uh, and then that lecture to yeah. Raphael, mm -hmm. um, it lays out what they're going to go through the rest of the movie, right? Like yeah. they're, they're going to lose splinter mm -hmm. and they're got, they have to figure out how to like bring Raph back into the fold. Yeah. Right. Like those are the, those are the, really the main character struggles. That yeah. They have. And, that, and that's like exactly how and, tight it is. Cause like only, only a couple scenes later, the splinter go missing and Raph freaks the fuck out. Yeah. It has that scene where the camera is spinning around and he's like, splinter. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that and that's a really really powerful scene too. Just the the 
Yeah, like the 360 going around. Exactly. While he's screaming. Yes. Like he's screaming. Yes, which is another point for this movie because there is a really thoughtful camera here. Like the just the framing of the scenes, the lighting, um, the the cutting. There's so much thought put into this. It's like, it's almost auteurish. Mm-hmm. In a way, like you can see the mark as a director. I'm I'm surprised he didn't go on to do other things. I mean, Coneheads. Yeah. But I'm surprised he didn't like go on to make something kind of more in this tone that maybe wasn't a comic book movie. I would love to see. So the foot rate at the apartment, I think, is more of a. It's an indicator of why Raphael feels left out by his brothers. Um, and he kind of gets frustrated. He goes on the roof, and they don't know where he is, and they say he, he does this all the time. Mm-hmm. And we we get the idea that they're not ignoring him, but they're they're trying to give him his space. Hasn't Raph been gone a long time? Nah, he does it all the time. He likes it. <laughs> Are you sure? And eh, don't worry. He'll probably be back any minute. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of a quick taste of what that scene is doing. And I think when this movie is kind of like addressing mental health issues in a way and what he's dealing with, the kind of like we don't show people on the outside what we're going through. And, you know, if you don't ask your help, how can you be helped? And I think, you know, Raphael is like so closed off from these people. He's kind of cutting himself out, but also his brothers need to like reach out yeah, and yeah. find him. Yeah. Cause you know, in that scene that you just played, it's Donatello totally not understanding the reality, you know, like, um, you know, if he's being sincere about, Oh, he, he just likes, it. he just needs to blow off some speed, uh, some steam and he'll be back. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, he, you know, he likes it. You know, <laughs> yeah. Like totally yeah. dismissive. Like he's right. fine. They don't understand what he's going through. You know, they don't yeah. have like the clarity that splinter has. And I don't think they really understand until, the the kind of famous like uh, retreat in the forest scene mm-hmm. which is um probably one of the most profound things in this movie and kind of what makes it stand out yeah um i think you don't get scenes like this in these kinds of movies anymore where it kind of it, kind of, it stops the story in a sense you yeah. know and it it doesn't really i mean it it does push the plot around but mostly what's happening when they retreat to that house after they get their asses kicked is that it, it's all character. Like they just like dive headfirst into de- developing all these characters. They, they, they develop Casey and April, the relationship between them and their banter, which is, you know, really great. It, you know, it's a, it's a nice little B story, but also, you know, how these characters react in crisis. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and uh, so just to talk about Leo's vigil, Right. Yeah. So I think that's the moment where um, they're resolving that like misunderstanding about like Raphael. Uh huh. Right. Is mm-hmm. like um, they, the misunderstanding about Raphael and not, and not kind of like bringing him, bringing him in as, as they should or looking out for him or, uh-huh. or, or uh, uh, reaching out to him as they should. Yeah. Um, but the, yeah. So that's Leo, I think, who like comes to that realization mm-hmm. and, you know, um, uh, has that has that vigil with him mm-hmm. um and then when he finally uh when he finally wakes up that's that's the moment where Raphael's part of the group again yeah you know um and from that you you see from that point on the the team 
is gelling, right? Yeah. You know, when Raphael wakes up from the tub, that's the point moving on from, you know, from that point on through the rest of the movie, like they're made whole, I guess, on that on that front, like the four of them are good. Yeah. But they, so now since the four of them are good, it's time to go get Splinter, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, so. Um, I think a part of that is because uh, Leonardo, he's the one sitting there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. He's like watching over him and Raphael wakes up and he sees him there. Yeah. Yeah. And he probably. Oh yeah. And he, he, he's like, okay, they, yeah, they do care. Or, you know, like this is my family. Yeah. Yeah. When I watch it, it, it seems more like a, like a detox scene, you know, like maybe like yeah. in another movie, this is a character on drugs trying to clean up, you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> With him like lying there in the tub. It's like also very grimy. And I think, um, there's this like very intentional April bringing these characters to like, she's making sketches of these characters and then talking about them, like really just like pulling all the life out of yeah. these puppets that you can, you know, she's like really just breathing life into them. And I think that's a very intentional move by, you know, the screenwriter slash the end director, to actually, you know, just insert as much life as he can and make it more believable. And it does really ground the style of this movie. And I think that's why it's so believable. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I guess to rewind, because we're talking a little bit about April and the turtles. Yeah. Uh, to rewind. So when April gets mugged the second time in the subway and Raphael comes to her rescue mm-hmm. um, and and basically like carries her unconscious to back to their hideout uh she wakes up and reacts in horror at seeing the turtles Mm -hmm. um that that made an impression on me watching this movie again Mm -hmm. because it was like the first time that i was kind of reminded that these are giant anthropomorphic (laughs) turtles you know like because you connect to the characters like so fast and Mm -hmm. like you're i don't know you're just kind of invested yeah right off the bat yeah and then I don't know. It's kind of like a, a a meta thing that the movie's doing is that April like kind of her reaction is like the first time that the the suspension of disbelief is kind of broken with these characters, mm-hmm. like um, her reaction to it. But then you know you get right back into it as soon as like she gets a little bit more comfortable with. Yeah, them. and I think since you buy in right away, the movie needs to remind you that this is like not a uh, commonplace in this even in this world. Right. That right. people don't know what the Ninja Turtles are. And yeah, this New York City of this movie. Like, yeah. They, these these you know yeah. these beings are not. Normal, yeah. Right. People are disturbed by them, and they are in hiding. Yeah, right, right. Mm-hmm. So toward the end of this re- retreat, um, they kind of meditate together, which is a, a nice little bonding moment. And you kind of you don't really get anything like that up until this point. But they they meditate and they connect with Splinter. And I want to play this because, I mean, it, it it's it's beautiful. This is like a the writing in this, the performance by Splinter. I don't know who he is. I, I, I missed that in my research, but the performance is just so good. Like the cadence of his voice, the way he delivers it. It's, it's like, I can't believe how effective it is. Let's listen to it. I am proud of you, my sons. Tonight, you have learned the final and greatest truth of the ninja. That ultimate mastery comes not of the body, but of the mind. Together, there is nothing your four minds cannot accomplish. Help each other, draw upon one another, and always remember. 
here tonight. That which I gladly return with my final words. I love you all, my sons. Splinter is pretty much saying in this scene, what bonds you is that I love you all. Mm -hmm. You're all my sons. And this is the thing that keeps you all together. And they just needed like a quiet moment to realize this. And I think as far as my point about darkness, that the the visual scene is in it's in the light. It's like this is probably the only scene that's shot during the daytime in the movie. Because I think pretty much every other scene is during the night. There's a few yeah. exceptions. Yeah. Uh, like at the courthouse and stuff like that. Yeah, no, it, it's... Um again on on the handful of scenes that'll choke me up every time <laughs> that's such a great scene yeah absolutely beautiful there is the movie lays out i think a comparison between the shredder and splinter mm-hmm. as father figures yes like this splinter is obviously a father figure yeah. right to to the turtles uh the shredder is a father figure to all of these kids Uh um in the foot um and you know he he goes so far as to say in in his 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 uh in his address to all of the 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 foot and i think the reason why he's addressing like all of these kids is because you know you know he wants to catch the turtles right he's trying to get information from uh from from the kids but uh you know he's he's basically giving an address to all the kids Mm mm-hmm and he goes so far as to say, this is your family and I am your father. Yeah. Um, you know, you are, you are here because the outside world rejects you. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's such an odd parallel to Splinter, mm-hmm. you know, because Splinter is a father figure to these, you know, these teenagers that the outside world rejects. Yeah. Um, same as, same as the Shredder. Um, you know, it, just that, you know, they're fundamentally different in, in that, like the shredders, a, a bad guy, you know, like he's like, he's a tyrant condones, violence, cigarette yeah, right, smoking. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Cigarette smoking. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so this scene, the one I'm referring to where he's like giving the address to, you know, to all the kids, that's where Danny, um, and we could talk a, a little bit more about Danny. Danny raises his hand, mm-hmm. you know, and, it it doesn't show it on camera that Danny basically sells out the turtles because yeah. you know if you remember earlier in the movie Danny sees Michelangelo like hiding under the table in April's apartment yes so he knows where the turtles are yeah so he like Danny raises his hand yes basically tells Shredder where they are brilliant and <laughs> we don't see it on camera yeah you connect the dots like it's it's when it's when Raphael is upset and on his own when the foot makes their attack <laughs> and um, but. Uh, so basically after that scene it's when is when Danny flips sides mm-hmm. and it it takes I don't know it, it takes a few or it took me a, I guess a few watches to pick this up yeah but it's it's Danny uh seeing how the shredder reacts to the foot's failure to like get the turtles mm-hmm. right because like they they attack uh, they attack April's apartment, but the turtles escape. Yeah. Um, and Tatsu has to come back. You know, his right-hand man co- has to come back and, and give Shredder the news yeah. that they failed. And the way Shredder reacts is, like, star- he's just, like, staring daggers at, 
at Tatsu. Yeah. Like shaming him. Yeah. You know Which I, mean? I think reminds Danny of his own father who is like consistently reprimanding him. And yeah. Hates it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so like you can see like it's working, right? Like Tatsu is like totally shamed. Like mm-hmm. can, as soon as Shredder leaves, like what does he do? He like goes into the locker room and beats up all of, all of the kids that like look up to him or, you know, like, um, all the kids that he trains basically he like goes into the locker room and like kicks their asses. Yeah. Total dick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, uh, so I think like that's the scene or that's the moment where Danny realizes like he's on the wrong side. Yeah. And what does he do? He, he just, he goes and, and talks to splinter and splinters like, you know, all you need is a friendly ear or something like that. Or like yeah. most problems, the first step is you just need a friendly ear, yeah. you know, and Splinter's a friendly ear to him. <laughs> and then that's got Danny, you know, like <laughs> Danny's on the good side now. Yeah. Splinter's a man. He's just a genius. Yeah. He's a good father. Yeah. 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 Which I think is, I mean, it's central to the movie, obviously, but it is a movie that's addressing fathers, the good father, the bad father, the absent father. Yeah. Danny's dad. Yeah. You got the yeah, you got the whole spectrum there, and uh, to your point on Danny raising his hand, which uh, it just goes to show the caliber of storytelling, the visual, purely visual storytelling. You get so much story in that one scene, and um, to re, you know reference our previous podcast, the Coens do that all the time. Mm-hmm. So in Fargo, you get William H Macy pulls up the driveway, pops his trunk, and that's where it cuts. Like you know what's being implied by that. Or uh, Sugar checking the bottom of his boot after you know he walks out of carla jean's house you know what that means yeah and it's on that level and (laughs) yeah just give your viewer just like this uh it's like give them a visual cue let them connect the dots exactly and it's so much more rewarding yeah 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 yeah, it's another example of that is like when danny after he sells out the turtles yeah and 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 shredder lays this out basically what that headband means uh-huh. you know like he he gives one of oh the, yeah the yeah guys great yeah the headband and he's like it's a tremendous honor to wear this uh dragon doji yeah right and then you see danny after he sells out the turtles you see him wearing the headband like, yeah he got the headband for that <laughs> yeah you know like it, it doesn't happen on camera but you pick it up it's like yeah wow yeah <laughs> <laughs> I still can't believe it. Like, yeah, yeah. I didn't even pick up on that. But it's, yeah, it's so smart. It's so yeah. smart. And you get so much story over there, you yeah. know, and you, it, it, it trusts its audience. Mm-hmm. This movie absolutely trusts its audience, which is, I don't, I don't, people might consider this a children's movie and maybe hold it in lower regard because of that, but this is not a children's movie. In, not even in like terms of subject matter, just in terms of like being able to, you know, put things together, you yeah. know, you really, you kind of have to think, yeah. you know, and, and, and the fact that you don't even realize that you have to do that. I mean, that goes just to show you like the seamlessness of it. You mm-hmm. know? And that, that takes a lot of craft and takes a lot of confidence. Are there any of the scenes that you wanted to cover? Yeah. So there, there's a couple of funny scenes and these are kind of just like kind of outliers, I guess. But, uh, yeah. um, there's this movie trope of the cocky guy eating the <laughs> apple. Um, yeah, it happens a couple of times. I didn't know about this yeah. trope, but when you say it, it makes complete sense. Yeah. So when uh, uh, Casey, uh, who we haven't talked about a lot, um, we we should. But uh, yeah. so Casey and and April have this little. Let's tip. talk about him now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so what's K- he doing here? So Casey, <laughs> Casey, uh, Casey is interesting. He, um, you know, the first encounter with Casey is is Raphael um, uh-huh. out seeing the movie. He stops some muggers. Um, and 
Casey wants to mete out some like brutal justice to these these muggers, and Raphael stops him. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, and that's probably like Splinter's influence or something, you know, like, no, that's, that's not the way to do it. You know, mm-hmm. he tells Casey that much. Uh, but, but Raphael is still kind of like an angry teenager. And, and now he sees like, Casey's the guy I'm going to take my anger out on. Right. And then yeah. this fight. Um, but, uh, but, uh, yeah, Casey, um, Casey's an interesting character. Like he, he, he comes in. Um, and he, I, I think he sees, you know, notwithstanding that first encounter with, with Raphael where, you know, he kicks Raphael's butt and, uh, um, oh man, at the end of that encounter, he calls him a freak Yeah, and you hear Raphael and he flips out, he flips out. He's like, freak. Yeah. Yeah. And this, yeah. So when he, when he screams, you know, when Raphael screams after that, we get a, like a wide shot of the city. Like he is. Yeah. Like, um, he's making himself heard, you know, like you can hear all of a sudden he's not, you know, he's not living in the shadows, you know, yeah, yeah. he's just, he's, he's out there. He's, um, yeah, he, he's just loud, you know, he's a big presence. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what that scene is speaking to as well. Um, the fact that he's also just, you know, very sensitive about being a freak, about not looking like a person, you know, he, he feels that very much. And I think that's part of him not being seen or accepted. And, I think that's very purposeful in the sense that, the, you know, these are teenagers and these are things you feel as a teenager. And uh, I'm, I'm sure that's why the comic was written or, you know, kind of this idea of, you know, teenage, oh, yeah. being a teenager and being a mutant, you know. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, these kind of things kind of go hand in hand, you know, finding your place in the world or being heard, being seen. I think these are all very, you know, various concerns of a teenager and growing up. Showing that rage, yeah, yeah that, that wide work. shot of the city and him just screaming, "Damn!" Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, but yeah, notwithstanding that first encounter, yeah. Casey, the next time Casey sees the turtles, it's uh, he's on that rooftop and he's got the binoculars and he sees Raphael doing like some exercises on his own. Yeah, blowing, sees, blowing off steam, blowing off steam. <laughs> yeah, uh, and then um, again, the film does this great job of letting you connect the dots because you don't see Casey again on screen yeah. until he's coming. He like barges in with his hockey mask and the hockey stick Is this to a, defend the turtles in the pawn shop. Yeah. In the pawn shop. Yeah. Yeah. He's, so you, you have to connect the dots that he sees Raphael get ambushed. Yeah. That doesn't happen on screen where Casey sees it. All Casey sees <laughs> is Raphael yeah. on the rooftop. Yes. Um, you don't see Casey again until he's comes to the defense of the turtles. Yeah. So you have to connect the dots that Casey saw. Raphael get jumped by 50 ninjas. Yeah. You know, and you have to know he's a competent fighter and he, you know, ends up beating Raph in the first fight. So when he comes in, you know what that means. Like, so so you see that like Casey's got this like sense of justice. He does. Yeah. Yeah. Like he might not be, he might not align with the turtles on how to, how it's done, but he is principled, but he's principled like, and it, you know, he wants to stop. He wants to beat up those muggers Mm-hmm. you know, in the beginning. So, you know, that's, you know, kind of expositioning his sense of justice. Mm-hmm. And then he sees Raphael get ambushed by 50, uh, 50 ninjas. And yeah. he's like, all right, that's not right. I'm yeah. Going and I'm going to, I'm going to save these guys. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, Casey Jones is a, is a great character. Yeah. And that small piece of dialogue in the fight, the first fight with Raph where he says, I hate punkers. And I oh, just realized yeah. this like, we, 
well, he just probably just feels like it's too much anarchy or chaos or something. Like right. He's more principled than that. You know oh, what I mean? Yeah, he has yeah. a sense of justice. Like, right. God, I hate punkers. Yeah. <laughs> especially, uh, what does he say? Like, especially the <laughs> ugly ones ugly that wear, ones wear green makeup. Yeah. <laughs> What 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 green makeup punkers? <laughs> it's like those are the ones I hate. Yeah, but um, I was just thinking about like what role is he playing here? It, it, it seems kind of vital. I couldn't really piece it together though because he kind of fills in for Ralph while he's not there. Yeah. and when they're at the house in the middle, you know, the farmhouse or whatever, um, he connects with Donatello. Right? Yeah, he's yeah. definitely playing a role. He's like yeah. fixing the engine. Like he's the thing. He's definitely doing something that brings them closer together you know yeah and i just kind of couldn't figure figure it out i mean he is a, a great character um but i was just kind of like as far as like archetypes or tropes or something like yeah yeah, yeah. like what is like what is he doing that another character is not doing yeah for, for... and I, I, i'm like he is like standing in for ref as like muscle and stuff like that but i i, I think maybe he, he's showing these turtles how to interact you know what i mean mm-hmm. like he's showing them how to fix things and um he's communicative like he's a big mouth and the movie also shows you that he's a big yeah. mouth with april so he's a guy that will tell you how he feels while raf is not you know he's like the oh. like raf yeah. is like silent and he can't ask for help you don't know what he's going through right casey is obviously a big mouth he's like mouthing off right and a similar personality, though, otherwise. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, you know, he has this rage, but he's like cocky. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and you get that exchange where he's like trying to figure out what to call April. Like, toots, yeah, baby doll. Like, right. Like, okay, so circling back to the apple. It's, <laughs> it's Casey and it's Raph yeah. who eat apples. Yeah. It's the cocky guy. It's like, a, it's, I don't know, it's a pretty common movie trope, I think, where you see like, I'm just so like uncaring and nonchalant about this. Like I'm going to let my guard down and need an apple or whatever. I yeah. Um, but uh, where, where that trope gets uh, uh, undermined a little bit is when Casey does it. He just has this like little tiff with April mm-hmm. um, where he's like, Oh, you know, he calls her toots, right? Yeah. She, she doesn't like that. <laughs> and, and uh uh, you know, he's like, well, you came and asked for help. And yeah. and she was like, I wouldn't ask for your help if you were the last living creature on this planet. Or yeah. whatever. And uh, he goes, you know, she storms off mm-hmm. and he's like, oh, it's coming along nicely. He like bites into the apple, sits down on the swing and the swing breaks, yeah. you know, like, so he's like the swing breaks and he's kind of like, it's like obviously kind of undermining that trope of the cocky guy. Like, yeah. You know, which brings me to April, who's like actually like a really great female presence. Yeah, you know, she's very yeah. self reliant in that scene. She's like, never mind, I'll do it myself. She's badass. Yeah, she's so badass. And then the last scene, you know, she's she's fiery. She's not depending on this guy. Like, she's like, I got a job to do. We can actually yeah, listen to that let's now. Let's listen to that. Yeah. yeah. I've been looking all over for you. Oh, Casey, hi. Hi. You. I. I. I look like I just. Called Mike Tyson a sissy. Yeah. And all you say is hi. What? You don't need an ambulance, do you? No, but I was. You just shut up and kiss me, okay? I got a report to do. Another one, you pussy. Huh? Oh, it's so good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I love that this movie does like not value machismo at all. 
No. No, yeah. it actually, it undermines it in mm. every chance it gets with Casey. And there's that scene where they call him, uh, what is it, um, claustrophobic? Oh, yeah. And like, I'm, no, I'm never so much I've as never even looked, looked, at, looked at another guy. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, like... Everybody in the room gets it, you know? Yeah, like, which, is, which has yeah. aged great, you know? Like, I was thinking, I was watching the scene, and I was like, it's framed in such a way where Casey just gets smaller and smaller and smaller in the frame until he's not in it. He right. just disappears in the door in the background, yeah. out of a door in the background. He's just backpedaling out of the out of the door. Yeah. It's, I don't got to take this stuff about being afraid. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, um... So she asked him at the end, she's like, do you need an ambulance? Like, yeah. she's like playing with him. She's telling them. And, you know, right. this is like a, this is a woman who's like, she's not depending on him. He, he didn't save her at all. I, I think his whole purpose is just to teach the turtles how to treat somebody like him. Mm-hmm. He's voicing what Raphael can't. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's, a, I guess, a conduit to uh, humanity, right? Like, yeah, I, I guess he's, a, I don't know if I want to go down that that road but <laughs> how about a sentence or two yeah um but going back to like casey and his principles yeah right and and the fact that he might not align with with the way the turtles do things uh-huh. at, at the end when the shredder gets thrown into the garbage truck yeah like casey just murders him yeah casually yeah <laughs> so he, just, he says oops oops <laughs> Pulls the lever on the trash compactor, yeah. and, and you just... see Splitter's helmet just, cr- yeah. or, uh, excuse me, Shredder's helmet just crushed. Yeah, it, it's 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 dark. Yeah, so, it is so dark. Yeah, and talk about it, I'm just connecting to that. It's like, um, it it kind of comes full circle on Casey Jones. You know, like, mm-hmm. I I don't know if the if the movie's doing this deliberately, but I I gotta figure it is. But yeah, he just like casually kills him in the garbage compactor yeah, something they could never do but yeah <laughs> <laughs> i could i can't like when i saw that i just imagined jim henson watching that and being like oh my what legacy <laughs> <laughs> like that's the one scene i thought about when he said there was so much violence he's yeah. like you promised <laughs> um pretty much covers like what's great about this movie and if you haven't caught it by now well, you're on your own. <laughs> yeah. But as far as outliers go, there's a lot of things in this movie are surrounding this movie that are that were like, you know, sort of interesting, especially considering um the production and stuff like that. But I was watching the sequel earlier and I know they made a bunch of money off the first one. And it's kind of funny to see the commercialization of the second one. Mm. Um like in the first ten minutes. One there's a montage of people eating pizza mm-hmm. and like, oh yeah they just they're banking off this angle of like pizza and they're, they're using this movie to like sell pizza and um in the um, in an interview about the production they were talking about the pizza and kind of because it feels like there's product placement in the first one yeah you see a few domino's boxes there's domino's right? yeah. and there's burger king but mm-hmm. it, it, in the interview about the production they're like we just need to eat well, we had no money to eat so we yeah. had to get like somebody <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and they're doing like a completely different thing in the second one where you can tell they're just like banking off the capital that the first one has like right. achieved for them and then the first fight takes place in a toy store like they're just really selling this you know yeah so so the uh commercialization um product placement yeah. angle on the first one i was reading some some comments on the internet some somebody complaining about the domino's boxes and i was like did they re 
I wonder if they got anything for that product placement because the the second time you see a Domino's box, mm-hmm. I think, is when they find uh, Danny in the hideout. Yeah, and Danny's like, "Oh, I ordered some pizza," and it a few days ago. <laughs> it's it's around here somewhere, <laughs> and it's like this is like grimy looking box, and Donatello opens it up, and there's it's all moldy and stuff like yeah. that. It's like. If they're marketing for Domino's, I'm, you know, it's probably not. <laughs> they're not effective. doing it right. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also wanted to talk about, you know, I, I hate to bring it up, but parts that don't work in mm-hmm. this movie. Because um, I think it's it's very good. It's it, it's one of my favorites, especially recently. On Letterboxd, I put it in my top four. Nice. <laughs> it's up there. It's up there with Phantom Thread. All right. Um, so... Parts that don't work, and I think parts that don't work for me are m- mostly maybe in the f- I don't even want to say this like maybe in the foot hideout. Mm-hmm. I, I just think like a it, it's kind of funny to say, but like some of the lesser acting is like Danny and like what's going on in the foot hideout. I mean, it, yeah. it, it works for me, but like it, it's kind of something that doesn't work. And I think the biggest thing that doesn't work for me is in the end where they're like fighting the foot in the sewer and there's like a cheesy little surf song. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's like Donatello riding the, yeah, his skateboard. Riding the skateboard but like people with his, his uh, staff. Those are two very small gripes. Yeah. I just wanted to know if there was like something that kind of stood out to you as like, eh. Um, yeah, uh, something that... I don't know if it's a criticism or, or what, but... It, yeah, like all of these plot connections mm-hmm. that they 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 kind of sneak in, and maybe it's because I'm I'm picking them up on on multiple rewatches. Yeah, I mean know? we're we're looking at it critically, and yeah. sure, a, a ton of things are going to come up. Yeah, there's things that I saw in there that I I didn't bring up in this conversation, but I I feel like a few themes working, you know, working in this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as as far as as far as that goes, I think that might be my only criticism is that it's a strength and a criticism. I think that maybe the the dots are a little too far apart to connect you know like yeah the headband thing i I, yeah i i feel like i wouldn't hold it against that i love that they trust the audience i really appreciate a movie that trusts its audience in a really smart way yeah and uh i i think rather i'd rather that be there than not not be there yeah and i think there's something like really clever going on this is something that we didn't talk about but i think it's an underlying theme and it's about censorship and uh, you know april being a news reporter and um the yeah. police trying to censor her and she gets fired for like calling these people out. Right. And Shredder sees her on TV talking about the foot clan and he's like, no, like this cannot happen. Like we don't want this attention, you know? Right. So right. I, I feel like there, there is like underlying themes of censorship in media. Yeah. And, and, uh, yeah. So the, the police don't want April talking about this, right. Cause it exposes the police as incompetent. Yeah. Um, the police call her boss and his dad. Yeah. Um, and then April starts getting downward pressure from her boss to, to get off the story. Yeah. And she doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that like the dots are kind of far apart to connect, um, is when Danny gets arrested for the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's the only time he gets arrested, but Danny gets arrested and, that's the leverage the cop has now mm. on April's boss. Yeah. Right. Cause he makes the phone call and he's like, uh, you got a son named Danny Charles. Mm, right. And then yeah. the scene's over. Yeah. You know, but that's like the leverage that he has over 
April's boss, and then the next time you hear from April's boss, yeah. he's firing her on the voicemail. These are all things like subconsciously I was connecting because I wouldn't have pointed that out. It's so cool. Like, yeah, you know, like I'm, I don't know, I'm kind of pointing it out as a criticism a little bit because it's like <laughs> the, the dots are so far apart, you got to connect. But, I, I think they're really right there. Yeah, like, but it's good. And yeah. that's what I'm saying. You have to, you kind of have to like either be intelligent or perceptive because there are things going on that they don't spell out for you. Yeah. <laughs> I think, an, <laughs> I think another thing that we wanted to talk about or just briefly mention is Sam Rockwell. I have that one. Oh, yeah. Point. Yeah. He gets, he gets screen time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, several lines of dialogue. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> he's talking. Yeah. He's talking. I don't know if he, this is his first thing. It's not. I looked it up. He's doing, he's doing a lot of TV before this. Okay. Yeah. He, he probably had like a good five years of experience before this. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And, and how old is he in this? He's got to be maybe... Is he a teenager? Or is he like young twenties? He, he's got it. I don't know. I didn't yeah. look up how old he was, but he, he looks like he's he, he can't be more than like twenty. Yeah. He so if he, if he's kind of established at this point when he does turtles, yeah, that's quite a career. He's done. Yeah, he's he was like in putting Hollywood. in work, and then he did a lot of TV after that. Mm-hmm. And I think the first thing that maybe I like consciously recognized him in was Green Mile, and that was in nineteen ninety nine. Oh, okay. Yeah, and that's yeah. like I, I think that's the one where he like really stood out for me and was like a presence. He, yeah, he was kind of like and then he in, went on a run in my periphery. Yeah, and yeah. he still is, yeah. and he's rocking it, dude. There were other considerations as far as casting, which I found. Um, I don't know if these are true because they seem. I mean, all, all these people had like smaller careers at this time, but they seem kind of like a, a stretch. But apparently, Nicole Kidman and Sandra Bullock were considered for April. Really? Yeah, I mean. I'm not sure if they were stars by then. Um, It is 1990. It is early 90s. I know. I know Sandra Bullock had a run in the early 90s. Nicole 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 Kidman. I'm not sure. Maybe not so much. But also, I read that a consider for Casey was uh, Johnny Depp, Keanu Reeves, and Christian Slater. Wow, we could have had. (laughs) What year was Speed made? Because we had Keanu and Sandra Bullock in in that. Oh, <laughs> could you imagine having Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Yeah, that would have been yeah. pretty good, at least. I yeah. mean, they are good. I love Judith Hogue as April, um, but that's like really something to think about. I couldn't confirm that. I saw it on one thing, and it, it was in Variety or something, so pretty reputable. But yeah, they were considered. And also, Judith Hogue, the woman who played April, she was working on Cadillac Man before this with Robin Williams, and she was kind of embarrassed about making Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So Robin Williams. Well, she had to fly out to go film this uh, right after Cadillac Man. Robin Williams asked her, you know, where are you going? She's like, I'm going to film a movie. And she didn't want to say which. And he's like, well, which one? And she's told him. And he just flipped because he was like a huge fan. Oh, yeah. And he gave her all this note, all these notes about uh, her character. So he, he kind of like told her what the character was all about and did a lot of like, you know, groundwork for her character, which I think I thought was like really cool. Yeah. He's a bit of a co- or like he was a bit of a comics and video game nerd yeah yeah i think his daughter's name is zelda but yeah that's something i read in multiple places so true (laughs) uh another thing is that toward the end of production this thing was like running on a shoestring the whole time i mean they they got their funding and stuff from all different places and people were giving them money at one time but they ran out of money toward the end of production and uh i think it was it was baron is his name right uh yeah um he said that there was 10 to 12 pages that weren't filmed Oh really? Yeah. Um, the screen. Yeah. yeah. And that um, it, it's not widely known, but that he was fired toward the end of production, and his cut was like even darker than this. Whoa. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Um, and that, uh, that's so interesting because the source material, 
as far as the comic, I think is the comic is pretty dark. But what everybody knows about the Ninja Turtles, like going into this movie, I think is from the cartoon. You know, it's, yeah, it's, I think it's, so. Uh, More widely than the comics, right. for sure. Right. So, like, to make it like this dark tone, that's a interesting. Yeah, I think choice. it was such a bold move, and I don't think yeah. that gets enough credit because this movie is. It, I mean, it, it is dark, but it's like it, it's it just lit really well. I mean, that darkness really plays like beautifully like especially to to develop the characters and kind of set the tone of the story um and so when you get, get kind of like that dusky light um in that farmhouse it, it, it you're getting story from it too you know yeah. you said this earlier but yeah it has to be it has to get back into the conversation for you know the move like the movies that really did the first comic book adaptation yes. adaptation really yeah. well yeah i think i think i think it needs to be back like i I feel like people might um, ironically like like this movie, or maybe like it's it, it feels very niche to me right now. Where the nerd like <laughs> the nerds, I don't know, I don't even know if that's a thing anymore. But uh, it's just like a really niche group of people who speak highly of this movie, and I think this is a movie that should be like widely accepted. It's legitimately good. Yeah, it's so good. yeah. I, I like honest. I, I think the argument can be made, and I don't know if we made it well enough here tonight, but in this movie could be a masterpiece. Like, yeah. <laughs> I really think it could be. I think it's really that well done. Um, a couple of last notes that I wanted to talk about that are kind of funny. Um, just kind of one-offs, but Roger Corman, famous producer slash director, had a different idea. He wanted to make this movie, but he wanted it to be comedians, like famous comedians of the day. And so it would have been Gallagher, Sam Kinison, Bobcat, Goldthwait, and Billy Crystal just painted green with shells on their back. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So Gallagher... Kinnison, yeah, Billy Crystal, and what was the fourth one? Goldthwait, Bobcat Goldthwait. Okay, I don't know who that is. Who um, is that? Okay, so uh, there was a show in the '90s called Happy Happily Ever After with the little rabbit. Like it was this guy with the little rabbit friend he would talk to. Oh, man. he has like a really distinctive voice. He's a director now, but like if you heard his voice, you would know exactly who he was. Okay, but I know the other three. I want to see if I can guess like who they would be cast as. Yeah, <laughs> like Kinnison's got to be Raphael, right? Kinnison, yeah, I can imagine that. Yeah, and then uh, Gallagher's Michelangelo, right? Okay. Oh just, yeah, Billy Crystal would make a good Donatello, I guess, right? Yeah, or Leonardo, but I don't know who you that may. fourth person is. Um. Oh but, yeah, maybe Leonardo. Well, no, like Bobcat Goldthwait just has like a really nervous energy. Okay. Um, what who, I think like uh. Maybe in in terms of like today, I would like compare him to Charlie from Always Sunny. <laughs> oh, so maybe he's the Michelangelo. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe Gallagher's Donatello. Is is Gallagher a little bit more cerebral than we give him credit for? <laughs> <laughs> he's more muscular than I give him credit for. Oh, that's okay. for sure. <laughs> yeah, he's got, I mean, you gotta you gotta be yoked to swing that hammer. <laughs> I think that was a really funny idea. And my last note, which I thought was kind of funny, and I noticed uh, watching it, but like uh, Shredder's helmet looks like a wastebasket, and his cape looks like a trash bag. And then he yeah, gets thrown. He, he does, it does look like a trash bag. And then he gets thrown. It might be made out of a trash bag. And then he gets thrown <laughs> into the trash at the end. Ah, beautiful. I feel like he's like coded to be like trash. Like this yeah. man is evil and he is trash. And Right. You just wrap him up in his cape and put a zip tie <laughs> yeah. at the top. You should not be listening to this man. Yeah. You should not be smoking menthols or like. Right. <laughs> um, but uh, no, I, I like Michelangelo's joke about. Uh, 
you know, like his costume is like maybe the shredder, maybe all those uh, blades are for making coleslaw. <laughs> I think that's one thing. That's another thing. Like there, there are like maybe corny jokes, but they're they're teenagers, and it plays well for me. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think this that's why this movie might be taken for something that isn't serious or something that couldn't be considered like more serious cinema. Um, and I, I I think it's funny that we're taking this so seriously, but I yeah. think this movie like could be can I don't know. I, I think that's our like whole argument that this movie I is one of the greats. Yeah, we got we got to make people believe. <laughs> after today, yeah. after today, they will they will believe. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about? Um, yeah. So that that uh, idea for Kinnison and Billy Crystal that that yeah. kind of sounds like um, I think there was a, an idea to to make a Lord of the Rings movie back in the day with mm. the Beatles, yeah. the, the, the Beatles foursome. Um, when you mentioned that, that's what, that's what it made me think of. What you can do with the Ninja Turtles is, is since the four of them have these archetypally distinct personalities is you can take mm-hmm. popular foursomes in pop culture and, you know, and, and, and just think who's the, who's the Leonardo, who's the Raphael, who's the Michelangelo, who's the Donatello. <laughs> so are there any popular foursomes that we might be able to slot in like uh like king of the hill like do you do you think uh the the four guys in the alley kind of divvy up personality wise like like the ninja ninja turtles i mean honestly i don't think that they're clear enough in my head. I think you might be able to take a better shot at this. Okay. I want you to run with it. Um, yeah. So I kind of see Bill as the obvious Michelangelo. Uh-huh. You know, he's like the lovable ditzy uh, goofball. Yeah. You know, um, it gets more difficult after that. But I, I, I think I see Dale as Raphael. He's the outcast. Dale? Not Dale. Boomhauer. Not Boomhauer. No, I don't see... Boomhauer is too well adjusted, you know. Like he is, he is kind of out there on his own. But Boomhauer, yeah, Boomhauer is too well adjusted, I think, to be to be Raphael. Oh, okay. I think Raphael's got to be a little twisted. And, and Dale, Dale, I think Dale is Raphael for me. Um, Boomhauer, Boomhauer might be the Leo. I think. Well, I don't know. I think the others kind of look up to Boomhauer. That's why I think he's kind of the Leo. <laughs> and then Hank may be the Donatello. He might be the, I don't know, between Hank and Boomhauer, they're the Leo and the Donatello. I think, I think, I think I could do this with Sex in the City. Sex in the City? I've seen a few. We've got Cynthia and Samantha. And... we got Carrie, Samantha, Charlotte, Miranda. Oh, there's no Cynthia? No, but close. Oh. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so I think... Carrie, obviously, she's. I think she would be the Leonardo. Mm-hmm. She's like the leader. I agree with that. Uh, Samantha, she's kind of like a rambunctious. She's the one that has a lot of sex and is always talking about it. But I think she's a Raphael. Like mm. she, she's the one <clears throat> that's just kind of a like the wild card. She's out there, you know. Yeah. Uh, Charlotte, she's the ditz. So she's obviously Michelangelo. Okay. <laughs> like, yeah. And then Miranda. Is it's kind of the more uh, 
the, the, the thoughtful one, but she is still very playful and also not the leader. Yeah. So, so Donatello. Okay. <laughs> and Donatello is definitely playful. I mean, they, you know, Donatello buddies up with, uh, with Michelangelo. And yeah. They, they goof off and together I think, all the time. Yeah. He, he's, he can't, like, he is like the brains, but also he can't be the leader because he's, he's, I, I guess, immature, you know? Mm. He's like still. He's like very playful with Michelangelo. They're like little kids in the corner, you know, and he's just like not serious enough to be the leader, you know? Yeah. Even yeah. though he is the brains. Yeah. So where do you see the Ninja Turtles when they grow up? Like, <laughs> what would they, what would they become as an a, adult uh, mutant Ninja Turtles? I feel like um, Michelangelo maybe owns a pizza business. Yeah. Yeah, I I buy that. I kind of see him as a surf bum. You know, he would just <laughs> he would just be a surfer. You know, he he wouldn't really care about a job or anything. But I could see him own, owning a pizza business. Yeah, uh, Donatello is probably a scientist. Yeah, in my in my fantasies, he's a tech bro. Yeah, he would he's, be. He's like, uh, yeah, he would be. He'd be rich. Yeah, like Donatello would be rich. He's like the he'd famous a, one. Yeah, he'd be like the Zuckerberg of the. Ninja Turtles. Yeah, I feel like Leonardo would be the one who never quite got to do what he wanted to. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, yeah. like he's laying low. Um, I don't know. Like he would just have like a really menial job. Um, maybe a family. But can that happen though? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. We'd have to. Like he, maybe he adopted. Yeah, because yeah. he's like such a leader. What the like, uh, like? Oh, I mean, he would probably want to follow in Splinter's footsteps. Who adopted? Oh, okay. So know? maybe he'd want so to pay maybe, that forward. Yeah. So maybe Leonardo has four human kids. Yeah. <laughs> Teaches them how to be ninjas. <laughs> exactly. You know what? I we didn't talk about this, but what I think this movie, this movie owes a lot to the Karate Kid. Yeah, they reference it in part two. Oh, they do. Yeah, they do the whole wax on wax off bit in part two. Oh. Well, okay. Yeah, no, like it, it totally owes a lot to the Karate Kid. You know, if, if Splinter is Miyagi and uh, the foot is Cobra Kai, you know, like if you look, kind of look at it that way, it's they're very similar movies. Yeah. You know, and, you know, you've got Miyagi playing mentor to uh, Raphael, or Miyagi playing mentor to uh, Ralph, or what's his name? Is it is it Ralph? Uh, in... Uh, in the Karate Kid, do you remember the main character's name? Um, I think R- Ralph is Ralph the name Macchio, of Macchio, or is, is that, that the name, name of the actor? Is that the name of the actor? <laughs> I can't remember if that's the name of the actor. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I'll get it for you right now. Yeah, Ralph Macchio is the name of the actor. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, God, what's the name of the character? Daniel-san. Daniel-san, yeah. So you got Miyagi uh, mentoring Daniel. You got Splinter Splinter mentoring Raphael. Mm -hmm. They're kind of the same same movie in (laughs) in a lot of ways. Um, And and just the... What the Karate Kid did to popularize, like, martial arts movies. I mean, it wasn't Karate Kid that did that. You know, you've got, like, Bruce Lee and... Yeah, but, like, as far as, you know, on the American side of things. Yeah, yeah. I think this movie holds up better than Karate Kid. <laughs> I do too. I do too. Um, but yeah, I think that's about that about wraps it up. And I think a thing that we wanted to reference um, that we didn't quite get to, and it just 
goes to show the the kind of like a thought and cleverness and the way they 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 use elements to to kind of give you story and that's the nunchuck scene oh yeah so oh, that's so good yeah we'll yeah. close up we'll close up the show with that clip um because it plays so well on sound but they're using music here yeah like uh so every you know it, you know as you're listening to this clip when you're hearing music it's michelangelo spinning his chucks and he's it looks amazing right like the camera's like he's getting more close-up shots yeah. and like close-up shots of his hands and he's like splitting the chucks behind his back and all that stuff and then when you don't hear any music and you just hear these lame swishing sounds it's the foot guy and it's like the camera is a little bit further back. Yeah, it's a wide just, shot. Yeah, he just looks totally lame. But like, yeah, the way but he's like, he's like probably doing just as well, but no music, and he just looks like a clown. Yeah, dude. yeah. So just the effect of the music and the camera work, it's like, it's Michelangelo looks badass. <laughs> so we'll go ahead and leave you with that, and we'll see you next time. Oh, a fellow checker, eh? conversation about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Thank you for listening. The voices you were listening to today was myself, C.R. Gonzalez, and Patrick Kelly. I know calling this film a masterpiece will certainly stir up some emotions for some, so let us know about it. You can follow us on Instagram. Type in Film Slobbery. That's F-I-L-M-S-L-O-B-B-E-R-Y and we'll be around. Please subscribe and rate us on our show page wherever you listen. Feel free to share what you like, what you didn't like. I'm sure there'll be plenty of things. Or let us know what to do next. Next week's conversation is about Paris, Texas from 1984. You should definitely watch this movie. Do it for your health. Music at the top and what you're listening to right now is by Randy Flores. Go ahead and give that a listen. We'll see you next time.